with the social media movement that's trending in Canada. Cancel Canada Day. Hashtag Cancel Canada Day. We talked about this on yesterday's show. It comes, of course, in the aftermath of the discovery of the bodies of buried children on the site of the former residential school in Kamloops. And groups like Idle No More, the Indigenous rights group, saying this is a time of mourning in the country. It should not be a time of celebration. Therefore, cancel Canada Day. Now have a listen to this here. You will hear the voice here of Dakota Bear from the Idle No More movement. Have a listen. It was, it's an ongoing genocide. There's forced sterilizations happening. Uh, there's birth alerts happening. You know, that's forcible removal of children transferred to another group. You know, that's sterilizing women so they cannot have children. There's so many moving pieces to this. And, of course, it's painful to see that, you know, we're celebrating at a time where we're mourning, constantly mourning. You know, there's 215 kids that were discovered and that's because we're pushing for that. We're pushing on the Canadian state to continue to search every residential school. That's not the first or last grave that they're going to find, you know. So it is, it's painful for us to see the celebration when we're in mourning. Okay, groups calling for Cancel Canada Day. Now, check this out. Later today, Victoria City Council is set to consider a motion filed by Victoria Mayor Lisa Helps. And the motion states that holding the usual Canada Day celebration this year could be damaging to the city's reconciliation efforts with Indigenous people. Therefore, uh, the city set to consider two options in a council meeting today. One, cancel the official Canada Day celebrations in Victoria or change the celebrations this year to include educational components on residential schools and the legacy of Sir John A. Macdonald. All right, let's discuss this issue now with my guest, Ellis Ross. Ellis is a Liberal MLA for Skeena. He is running for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party, and he is the former elected chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation. And he wrote on Twitter yesterday, don't cancel Canada Day. There's a better way here. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ellis, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, Ellis, cancel Canada Day. You wrote on Twitter yesterday that you don't think that's the right way to go. Tell me your thoughts on this. Oh, man, where to start? I mean, it's yeah. there's a number of things that happened to First Nations uh, over the last 100, 150 years. It's not just residential schools. And it, when you find out the whole story, you'll be shocked in terms of what happened, just like I was shocked 17 years ago. But I had the same knee-jerk reaction that everybody else is having today. I had the same feelings of anger and revenge. Uh, I was in a very dark place for a number of days. But then after a while, I started to think about it and think about, you know, am I really thinking about revenge for what's what, for myself? Or am I really thinking about what's best for the people? So I finally decided, you know, I've got to channel my energies in a more more efficient way to actually make life better for my people which i did and we're living the results right now there's ways to channel energy and i understand the shock i understand the anger and i I just ask canada everybody all canadians stop take a breath think about this for a while because if you do a knee-jerk reaction like what i'm seeing out right there right now you're not really going to help those people that are suffering 
the most. It's not going to help. I mean, I've, I've already seen a number of uh, solutions proposed by Aboriginal themselves that would do way more to heal this pain than what I'm seeing out right there, uh, right now from political leaders. And I ask the political leaders, are you doing this for your own self-conscious or are you doing this for the betterment of people? Because that is not what reconciliation is in, in, right. in what you're proposing. Right. What would be a better a better path forward, Ellis? You mentioned that you've heard some ideas that would do a, a lot more good than than canceling Canada Day. What do you think would be a better idea? Well, you know, I've, I've seen the settlements come out over the years in terms of cash that hasn't helped. I've reviewed a number of different programs in terms of uh, programs being directed at residential school survivors. They haven't helped. The one thing that I've seen come out of this 215, the number itself. Uh, that came from Aboriginals, it's repatriation. And the more I think about it, the more I think about what would it be like for 203 First Nation communities in in B.C. Yeah, to to repatriate, to continue the investigation, to continue. We talked earlier on the show about... No, 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 not that, not that. Okay. necessarily. Sorry, I just can't get the words out. I understand. What, What I'm thinking about is what would it, what it would be like... For 203 First Nation communities in BC to stand at the entrance of their communities and welcome mm-hmm. the remains, even if it's symbolic, because the DNA, you know, the, the, what they're proposing is going to take years, if not decades, to trace back the remains in terms of place of origin. But if we can, if we can actually all agree as First Nations, say, look, every First Nation will be repatriated remains. I mean that that would that would do more for healing than anything else. And then you can include Canadians, British Columbians. I mean, it, it, I just think that the, the, there's a lot more to healing than what you just seen out there as a knee-jerk reaction. Speaking to Ellis Ross, Liberal MLA, uh, former elected Chief Counselor of the Heisla First Nation. Ellis, you wrote on Twitter this. Yes, this week, don't cancel Canada Day. Can you imagine how significant it would be for First Nations and non-First Nations to be together on this day? We need this as part of our collective healing. Uh, it's interesting to see the city of Victoria considering a motion at their council today to potentially cancel uh, the city's Canada Day celebrations, but there's also another option on there to proceed with the celebrations but include some educational components on on the, the legacy of the residential schools do you th- do you think that's a good idea like is is Canada Day be a good a good opportunity to re- try to remember and understand and educate people about the, the legacy of these schools no I think uh, residential schools needs its own day mm. uh, by I think the whole Aboriginal issue in terms of what happened to Aboriginals over the last hundred years needs its own day Canada Day you know, it celebrates more than, than what than, than what we're talking about here. And by the way, where does it end? I mean, B.C. was just as complicit in what happened to First Nations over the last 100, 150 years. Nobody's talking about that yet, but it will come out. So are we going to talk about canceling every single day that, that is associated with, say, the, 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 colonial, the colonial society, which is a term I don't like using, or the settlers? It's not going to end. I mean, every, every every holiday you can think of is actually 
brought to Canada from someplace else, whether you're talking about uh, Christmas or something else, you know, it's where does it end? I mean, so no, ultimately, I, I, th- I think we should just sit back, think about this, acknowledge the, the, the wrongdoings in the past, but do something significant onto its own to actually address this, not the, not the knee-jerk reaction. Right. Let me play another clip here for you, Ellis, from Dakota Bear from Idle No More. And he was asked, "Isn't when you talk about canceling Canada Day, isn't that just part of what, what's become known as cancel culture? And he had an interesting response here. Let's have a listen. Canada was built on cancel cu- culture, though. You know, um, they had to cancel our culture for Canada to become what it is. You know, they had to destroy one nation for Canada to be birthed as a nation. So when we have all of the facts, not opinions, but facts, you know, on how Canada became what it is today, then we have a lot of work to do before we start celebrating. Okay, what do you think of that idea or that argument, Ellis, where he says, you know, Canada effectively cancelled Indigenous culture, so therefore we should cancel Canada Day this year. Your thoughts? Well, I do agree with the first point. It was basically a uh, cancel culture initiative. But yeah. using that uh, theory to actually cancel everything going forward, I, I can't agree with that. Because you think about it, First Nations are fully immersed in the 21st, cult, 21st century culture of today. Fully immersed. Yeah. I mean, he's talking on the phone. Yeah. That is not Aboriginal culture. We're on Facebook. We're on social media. We have TVs, radios. Uh, we actually embraced the beads that the settlers brought to us. We actually embraced the stick-built houses. We embraced their religion. I mean, my band, there was, religion wasn't forced on us. It was, it was a gentleman that actually canoed down to Vancouver, discovered religion, and canoed that religion back to our community. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's a different world. And I haven't met one Aboriginal elder yet that said, yes, I would like to go back to the old ways, our old culture, because that was a tough time. You think about the, the culture back then, it was immersed in the customs and just survival. I'm not about to strip off all my colonialist clothes, you know, walk away from my truck and go shoot a deer and make clothes out of its hide. Mm-hmm. I'm not about to go, you know, make a bow and arrow and try to sneak up on a, on a bear so I can kill it for food. We, we've got to acknowledge that the culture of today is totally different from the culture of, say, 200, 300 years ago, and even, for that matter, 100 years ago. So okay. there's a lot of ways you can discuss the, the, the culture in terms of uh, yesterday and today. Ellis, it's always fascinating and insightful to have you as a guest on this show, and I'm very grateful to you once again today. Thank you for coming on. You're very welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about mobility pricing. One step closer in the city of Vancouver now. It's all part of the city's climate change emergency action plan. How do you convince people to stop driving cars to combat climate change? You hit them where it hurts. You whack them right in the wallet. That's what you do. So the city considering virtual toll booths to be put up around the city, maybe a paywall around vancouver you hammer those drivers just let them have it here we're in a climate change emergency here now now the city has hired a consultant 
to take a deeper dive, a closer look at this idea. This has been a long time coming here. The city's been looking at it. Looks like it's uh, they're going forward here, at least taking steps toward it. Have a listen to this here now. This is Matt Horn from the city of Vancouver. He is the author, the writer of the Climate Action Plan, and he's asked here, how would this mobility pricing thing actually work? Here's what he had to say. The honest answer is right now we don't know exactly how it would work. We've, we've looked at evidence in other jurisdictions and see it working really well to manage congestion and reduce pollution. Um, what exactly would be the best system in Vancouver is the work that has to happen over the next couple of years. Okay, and that's what they're doing now. So they say they will hire a consultant to take some more looks at this, a deeper look at it. Yeah, and they're looking at other cities around the world too, like in London where you get whacked with a congestion fee if you uh, drive into the heart of London. Should they do the same thing in Vancouver? Let's discuss now with my guest, John Cooper. He's a member of the Vancouver Park Board, and he's running to be the next mayor of Vancouver. John, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate okay, what it. Do you, what do you think of this idea? Well, I think you have to. Uh, we have to get to a little bit back to some common sense in Vancouver. You know, what I've ob- observed in my time, 10 years elected in the Park Board, is that once uh, consultants start to get hired and money starts to get spent, we start going down the road, which is sometimes unstoppable and uh, I just would like to call an immediate halt to this I think there is absolutely no need for it in Vancouver Uh, we talk about cities like London they have a population of 9 million we have a population of 600,000 we're actually seeing trips to the city by this by the the city's own report are down uh, trips vehicles entering the city are down 5% since 1996 even in their own transportation 2040 report wow Wow. Uh, I think, you know, when we're seeing electric vehicles uh, coming on board, which is going to make a huge difference to uh, to uh, greenhouse gas emissions by vehicles. So I, I just think this is wrongheaded. It's another way to pick your pocket when we don't need it. Right. Now, they are spending, I believe it's $1.5 million in feasibility studies on this at the moment. Is that correct? Uh, that's what I've heard. That's, yeah. uh, I mean, in the overall budget of the city, that's not a lot. But it, in right. the actual, when you start taking a, a million and a half dollars and uh, put it into services, whether it be, uh, you know, cutting grass in parks or whatever it might be, uh, that money goes a long way. Yeah. So, okay. So you would, you would cancel, you would cancel the, the feasibility study. You'd put the brakes on this right now. I would put the brakes on it right now. I don't yeah. think it's something we need, uh, in Vancouver, we're, we're already seeing trips dropping. You know, we're improving transit. Uh, certainly, we have no shortage of, uh, of bike routes in the city to get into town. And, um, you know, I think parking also, um, you know, regulates the amount of the cost. But the big thing is, is this, we're in a pandemic city. We're coming out of a pandemic. We really need to yeah. support our businesses. You know, what about all the tradespeople that have to move across the city? What about the courier companies that have to deliver? All this is going to add additional cost to businesses that are, um, you know, right now just hoping to come out of this and and, uh, be successful once again. Yeah. Speaking of that, what kind of impact would a system like this, you think, have on the economy of of the city? I mean, there's a lot of businesses that 
have got no other option. They have to have vehicles on the road. It's part of their business model. They could potentially get hammered here for thousands of dollars in tolls per year if they brought this in. And like you said, we're just emerging from this pandemic, trying to get onto the other side of it. We've gone through a real difficult economic time because of this uh, this public health emergency. And now you got the city at the same time saying, we're going to put up virtual toll booths and just wallop people with tolls. I mean, you got to be like the timing of this is just extraordinary to me. But like, what would be the impact of that if they actually did this thing? Well, I think you're right. I think it's completely tone deaf based on the situation we're in. But we're also in a bit of a competitive environment with the other municipalities around here. We're trying to attract uh, businesses and companies. And, and, you know, we've got some we've had some good successes recently with some large uh, even some large companies coming in and building in Vancouver. Uh, the difficulty is if you make it more and more difficult, uh, those businesses have a choice. They can set up shop in Surrey or Richmond or uh, anywhere around uh, around here. They don't have to necessarily be in Vancouver. And uh, what about all the restaurants and folks like that who have been hit hard, um, who, you know, rely on people coming downtown? Vancouver is a bit of a dis- destination. You know, when somebody wants to go out and have a nice evening, they want to come to Vancouver and, and uh, go to some of our fine restaurants and right. cultural activities and stuff like that. If you're going to just price them out, uh, is it going to cost you to go? To, you want to go to a Canucks game? It's going to cost you to come mm. <laughs> come into the city to watch the Canucks plus pay for parking? Like, I think these guys have got to wake up and, and, and start really thinking about r- reality. Um, you know, nobody's saying there's not a clim- climate problem. Right. But there are lots of other ways to deal with it without just charging people through the nose. Okay, speaking of John Cooper, he's running to be the next mayor of Vancouver. Uh, Speaking of if Vancouver was to go it alone with some sort of mobility pricing scheme like you mentioned, I I agree with you. I think it would put the city at, at a competitive disadvantage compared to the other municipalities in the region. But that's why some people want an even wider application of a mobility pricing plan maybe you put up these virtual toll booths all around metro or the lower mainland and have a listen to this now this is this is matt horn once again the author of the vancouver's climate action plan asking whether there should be a provincial mobility pricing scheme listen to what he says here and when we've looked at other cities around the world that have implemented transport pricing um they've all started at sort of a smaller urban core and then be able to expand to a broader basis. We haven't seen any systems that have started from day one. It's sort of a broad regional system. Yeah, it is spread it out. You know, maybe you start whacking people with tolls in Vancouver, and then maybe you spread it out to Metro Vancouver. Who knows? Maybe the whole well, province. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting though because you you look at the the you know the the premier the, the first thing you know his big promise was to eliminate tolls on the bridges and uh, yeah. allow people to travel freely in the lower mainland and uh, that seemed to be quite uh, uh, quite popular it seems like uh, it's got him elected twice so yeah. i think i think you have to be very careful about uh, you know um, you're kind of impacting people's uh, freedom to move around freely in a free society and and i have some concerns about that i think we're i think we're very regulated um, there comes a time when maybe you have to push back and say, uh, you know, we're not going to have it. And, you know, the NPA party that I belong to, uh, you know, we're going to have a strong team together. And uh, this is this is certainly not something that we're going to support. Okay, last question for you. You mentioned that there are other cities around the world where they brought in these type of mobility pricing schemes to convince people to drive less, reduce congestion, reduce emissions. 
And one of the examples that's constantly held up is the city of London that was mentioned earlier. But if you take a look at the transportation infrastructure in, in London with, with a mature system like the underground subway system in London has been there for, what, 100 years or something, and it goes all over the metro region of London, we have got nothing like that. We don't have trans public rapid public transit options that are available to people in this region. Hopefully one day we will. But to wallop people, to wallop drivers with tolls right now, when you don't have a really good, effective public transit option, I, I think is unfair. But your thoughts? Well, I, I think the reason they have that is they've had a, a huge population in London, you know, even 100 years yeah. back. So yeah. they had the ability to uh, to have a system that they built early and they keep building and expanding on it and that sort of thing. I mean, we're working on it, no question. The, uh, you know, the Broadway line will be a help. The Certainly the Canada line and the Expo line have have changed the way people move, and I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing a decline in tri- in trips uh, anyway. But, um, you know, I think you, you have to be careful about using an example of a mega city like London and comparing it yeah. to uh, a Vancouver, which is pretty much a pretty small city, and even when you take the whole metro uh, area, it's, it's no, it doesn't even come, it's not even a third the size uh, of London. So I think using London is, a, is just being lazy actually it's not doesn't yeah. make any sense to me that we would compare ourselves to london england all right welcome back to the show let's talk about wait times for an ambulance in british columbia now have you seen some of the news coverage on this topic global news especially has been covering this issue uh, the last few days lots of stories out there about people who have waited a long time for an ambulance the woman who fell and broke her hip at the Metrotown Skytrain station, waiting for more than an hour for an ambulance. Some people waiting a lot longer than that for an ambulance. Why is that happening? Let's discuss now with my guest, Troy Clifford. He is the president of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC. It's the Paramedics Union, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Troy, thank you for coming on the show today. Mike, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, you bet. We've heard a lot of these stories about ambulance delays, people waiting a long time for an ambulance to show up. Troy, what's going on out there? Yeah, so you're right. Uh, we've heard of that, and it is a reality we're facing and a challenge and some growing pains with, uh, you know, the experiences we've had, uh, the pressures of not just on the paramedics profession and our dispatchers. Uh, you know, we, we know that the last uh, year and a half uh, has really exposed uh, some of our our challenges for instance with uh with covid i mean the pressures around the increased call volumes and or pressures around extra ppe um you know and uh we're five years into an opiate crisis that isn't getting better we've seen our worst numbers uh, recently um and people are dying from overdoses so those are all things that are increasing our call volumes and then on top of that we've had we've had trouble recruiting into our profession to be honest uh you know there's we're you know, we have a shortage of people coming into the paramedic profession, which has uh, exasperated our, our need to fill positions in the lower mainland, but across the province. So it's kind of a three-pronged, triple threat. Uh, I, I'm optimistic on a few fronts that we've been working with the ministry the last couple of weeks, and they've been very supportive of acknowledging this, and even going back a couple of years. And we're really excited about some announcements that are coming this week with uh, additional support. Uh, um, so, I, you know, the pressures are no doubt causing it. I just don't want the the effects on uh, you know that the, the the 
the horrible situation with the lady on the Sky Train. We, nobody wants that. I mean, you know, I right. talked to the minister about that. Okay, Troy, there was a post from a paramedic on Reddit that I, I believe you're familiar with that sort of went a little bit viral on a Reddit a chat group where he identified himself as a BC paramedic and he had a long thread on there. I've actually corresponded with this with this guy on on the Reddit system. And and he had a lot of ex, uh, examples of people who in his opinion were calling an ambulance when they didn't really need one. So he writes that there are people who call us because they have back pain from lifting heavy objects and they decide not to take Tylenol instead. We have people who shave their legs and cut their legs. They call an ambulance. They want us to take them to the hospital. And he writes, a cut on your leg from shaving? This is not a medical emergency that warrants an ambulance. Do you agree with that assessment that some people are calling an ambulance when they really shouldn't? Yeah, so, Mike, I've been a paramedic 33 years, and there's no question there is some uh, abuse of the system, I mean, no different than any other system. Um, I, I look at it from, uh, so uh, the examples uh, that person describes are our reality we face in, in this system. Uh, I look at it as a public education perspective, um, and a default in a lot of senses, people don't know. Um, you know, I don't want to assume everybody's abusing, but there are people that legitimately call an ambulance that uh, probably should be referred to, well, not probably, they should be referred to alternate um, providers and that, and, and that yeah. hasn't, the system hasn't addressed those issues, but a lot of society doesn't have, we don't have a lot of options for referrals and that, the system isn't set up for that, and that's one of the things we've been lobbying for, for change, because um, and that was identified for COVID. We have secondary triage in our dispatch center where we had physicians and our paramedic specialists where we were able to actually triage the calls and refer people to other things and, and assess them and say, you don't need to go to the hospital for that situation. And right. we need to do better with that sort of stuff. And we also need to do better with educating the public so that they don't in unnecessarily use an ambulance. But the key thing, I think, Mike, is not, we don't want to deter anybody who feels that uh, they need an ambulance from calling 911 because we don't want right. uh, somebody's mother having chest pain and thinking, oh, I don't want to bother the paramedics because I, I we know denial in a cardiac incident is a classic symptom. Um, so we yeah. want to make sure that we find that balance. But I, I wouldn't say that abuse is rampant, but I think there is definitely abuse of the systems out there. Okay, it's very interesting, and it must be frustrating for a paramedic to show up at a call and the person who was called the ambulance really maybe didn't need the ambulance. So th this paramedic on Reddit says, for example, um, stop thinking that the hospital is where you need to go. You know, yeah. if you are a 19-year-old and you've been out in the sun drinking and now you have a headache, you don't need to call an ambulance. You need to just drink some water and take a Tylenol. So, yeah. you know, but like you said, you don't want to discourage people from calling when there could be a real emergency. So, you know, whose call yeah. is that? Is it is it the dispatch or like the person who takes the 911 call? Do they ask the person for a description of the emergency? And then do they sometimes say you don't need an ambulance or does that happen? Or 
so normally uh, they would assess the call and prioritize it. And so low acuity calls, um, we don't normally tell people they don't need an ambulance, but we can uh, refer them through the nurse line or 811 or, or through COVID. There's been alternate, and we have our paramedic specialists in the dispatch center that can assist with secondary triage to help with those issues that you described. You know, use yeah. the, uh, you know, the sun example. You know, there are medical emergencies to relate to the sun, so we have to be very careful. You know, if somebody gets into heat stroke or, or that, that sure. uh, can affect so we want to be very careful that we don't advise people uh, they don't need help, right? Yeah, okay, so, uh, that, that is a tricky situation for sure. Yeah. Another, th- another thing that this, uh, this post says on Reddit is that hospitals will book transfers using, using the ambulance and paramedic system. So taking a patient from one hospital to another hospital to be for treatment and an ambulance will be used for that. And the, the paramedic writes, this is a major burden. Is that, is that true that these transfers are sometimes a burden on the system? Uh, I would say that, uh, that's not entirely reflective of, uh, most inter-hospital transfers between facilities, we do two, two primary functions at an emergency service and a paramedic services. We treat and transport patients in their, from the pre-hospital side, which means that residence is on the street, what people traditionally see. But a big role of ours is inter-hospital transfers. So we treat to higher acuity. So, for instance, in the Lower Mainland, we have children's, we have higher acuity trauma hospitals, tertiary hospitals, and around the province, we have that. And we do a lot of transfers for people that need treatment and transport in the back of the ambulance so that is our role um do we have enough resources for that but we also have people that just need essentially transport to an appointment we have private services so what we don't have is enough uh, resources to make sure that we are adequately have enough transfer resources to provide medical care on a inter-hospital facility transfer right and that i think that's what he means by a burden is that we don't have enough resources to uh, to address both situations so the transfers right. can take away from our capacity to emergency respond. But there's definitely a need for our inter-hospital. We also have critical care. Um, we transport by air um, between facilities, uh, you know, an ICU in the air, our helicopter and, and plane. So it's a complicated system, and I probably went too much into the weeds for you there, Mike. <laughs> okay, uh, speaking to Troy Clifford, he's the president of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC. Troy, you mentioned earlier that there is a shortage of of paramedics and that you're having trouble recruiting. I don't know. I find that a little surprising. I remember I had a buddy of mine who was a paramedic, and I remember when I, we were growing up together, um, we're, we were really impressed with that guy. Like, I thought that's a very cool job, a very respectable job to have as a paramedic. And why do you think that there's trouble recruiting paramedics? Why is that happening? Excellent question. So I'm that guy. 33 years in that uh, you you not, not your guy but I, I'm that same yeah. guy and I love this profession it's a great job um, I love treating and helping people um, you know the, the president role evolved out of that but why we're having trouble is that uh, society has changed um, our model of 75% on-call uh, care around the province is the entry level into the profession so we have a, a, a largely a volunteer where you receive a two dollar stipend um, to be on call in a smaller rural and remote community, which is our intake area, um, waiting for a call, and you only receive your pay when you're activated. So that's, you know, so if you're a paramedic or a, a kid out of high school in the lower mainland that wants to go into our great profession, you have to apply, and then you probably will get a rural and remote station around the province, whatever one is hiring. And you may have to move to that community or commute to that community, 
and all they're enticing you with is a, a stipend while you wait for a call. And those communities have low call volumes. So you can't make reasonable earnings in that. And that's changed. And that's not a sustainable model, and it needs to be modernized. So that's why it's not that people aren't going and taking this paramedic training, but we're competing against other professions, healthcare disciplines, and, and what we're competing against is industry. I can be a medic in industry and make a considerable amount of money. So that's where uh, we need to change our model and entice these people into and show them how amazing this profession is and compensate them and treat them uh, as the true professionals in every corner oh. of this that they need to be. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. So when you say a $2 stipend, you mean like a $2 an hour while you're waiting for a call to come in? Is that right? Unfortunately, that is very correct. $2 an hour. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and then they're paid the paramedic wages. So if you call, I'll use a, a small community like, uh, you know, uh, like Anaheim Lake up in the Caribou. Sure. Um, where Carrie Price is from. Uh you know, and so they have an on-call model there. So you go there and you're waiting for a call, very low call volume comparatively to other communities. So you could go a whole couple days without getting a call in that community. So you make essentially a 12-hour shift, you make $24. Um, that doesn't even pay for your gas to get there. So it's really hard to entice people into that. Okay, so, uh, you, need, so you need, you're lobbying the government for more funding. Yeah, for those, for those, for that, that uh, and we're lobbying them for modernization of the that service delivery model to compensate the profession. We've actually had a really good opportunity in the last couple of weeks and over the last couple of months to meet with them, and and they're they're actually interested in this recruitment uh, perspective. So I'm really happy with Minister Dix and his office uh, uh, taking this seriously and uh, their acknowledgement of that. And I'm happy with the the staffing announcements that are going to come up here in the next week or so, that uh, they're adding resources that are really exciting for us. So their response has been excellent from my perspective, and it gives me optimism that we're going to be able to get through these growing pains and address this really with meaningful solutions to get people into this profession. That's that's a positive that I've really uh, been able to extract out of Troy, it's an important story, and I, I'm grateful to you for your time today. Thank you for coming on and being a guest on the show. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I hope it helped uh, educate and, uh, and get some awareness around this situation. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the delays to get a road test in British Columbia. If you're looking for a driver's license, ICBC reporting that during the pandemic, because of the restrictions that were in place last year, road tests were canceled for five months, leading to a backlog of more than 50,000 people trying to get a road test and to get a license, causing a lot of trouble for people. CBC reporting a BC man in the interior, 19-year-old Caleb Siemens and Salmon Arm, had to quit his job as a carpenter because he could not get a road test in order to get licensed to drive his truck. His post on Facebook went viral. A lot of other people chiming in with very similar experiences and frustrations of trying to book a road test in British Columbia. Let's speak to our go-to expert on this topic, Steve Wallace, owner of Wallace Driving School. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Steve, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, uh, good morning, Mike. Hey, Steve, we've talked about this before with the backlog of people trying to get a road test. What are you hearing? This is different, okay? It's uh, it's always been difficult to try and clear the backlog of that five months of inactivity. But the problem that's happening now is more 
societal than anything else. It's the weirdest thing. I've never seen it like this before. There is a significant backlog, but the reasons are that people want their license to be employable. So employers are looking at the resumes. If you don't have a license, they go to file 13 in a lot of cases for reasons that they want to know. It's a pseudo-intelligence test. Did you get 40 out of 50 questions right on the learner's license uh, theory test? So once they have that in the bag, then they say, okay, I've got someone with reasonable intelligence. Let's go further with the interview. So it's different now in that it's not just the backlog. More people want their license. Women don't feel safe. The crime stats are up. You can, you've been reporting on it all the, this whole time. They want to be safe, so they want their license. They want to be in a vehicle. Guys, the same thing. They want to be in a vehicle. They don't want to be waiting for the bus, although we have the best bus drivers in the world with great you know, great safety records. Uh, they're not sure about getting on the bus. They don't want to take a cab. The cab industry is under duress with the, you know, the ride-sharing guys. Uh, and, and they don't want to ride their bike in bad weather. So there's this whole scenario of people wanting their license for other than the normal reasons. The kids are now in soccer. They were one and two years old, but now they're five and six, and now they have to be transported by vehicle. So the parents have swore they'd never drive. They want their license. So there's this tsunami of people wanting their license that never, never actually wanted it before. Wow. Okay. So you've got the backlog combined with a lot of new drivers looking to get licensed and it's creating, it's creating problems, right? Like what are, what are you hearing for, in, for people who are trying to get that road test? They're doing whatever they can. They're, they're booking times anywhere they can. Now that the pandemic is relaxing and they can go from, you know, from one area, from one area to another, they're actually doing that. They're, they want to take a test in Quinella. They'll, they'll drive a day and a half to get a test in Whistler, wherever they can get it. But the fact is that this tsunami of development and road tests is affecting the driving schools. I'm the guy that used to have a, I mean, I used to have a three-day guarantee. Phone me up, you register, you're in the car three days later. Try three weeks to three months now. Oh. The business has expanded so much that it's malaffecting everyone. And so you'll have people phone up and they've never driven before. I just got out of the car. I just gave a lesson to a lady. She's 30 years old. She has to get her license. She's got a promotion. She doesn't get her license. She doesn't get the promotion. That's a market that we never had before. Plus, the seniors, they're still mailing letters to seniors who are 80 saying, come on in for a road test, which takes up two times. Instead of 45 minutes, it takes 90 minutes. They're mailing letters to seniors who have perfect driving records and say, oh, come on in for a road test. At a time when the road tests are... The, the wait time is, is more than why, ever been in BC. Why are they doing that? I actually uh, spoke to a friend of mine who, whose father was called in for uh, a road test and was quite quite inconvenient. Why yeah, are they? Yeah. Why are seniors being called in to do an, a road test? Well, when they turn eighty, they get a note. Go to your doctor. So they go to their yeah. doctor, and the doctor is sitting there, and the doctor makes a determination whether they should go for a road test or not. Not all of them go. Only about three to five percent are actually called in for the road test. But that that adds uh, three to five percent of that age group. And in that situation, you have a you have. Um, a 90-minute a, a test as opposed to a 45-minute test. Oh, so boy. Uh, this isn't ICBC's fault. This is something that, I mean, one of the ICBC guys phoned me, and he's in management, fairly high up, and he says, Steve, what's going on? And I said, what do you mean? I was going to phone you. What's going on? And he said, well, we thought we'd have the backlog all done by now. It's been almost a year. 
And I said, yeah, I thought you'd have it all done by now as well. And he said, so what are you seeing? I said, I'm seeing people who would never before want to get a driver's license are now first in line. They want driver's licenses, and they want them now for reasons they've had a couple of kids in soccer or they need a job application that says, yes, I have a license, because otherwise it goes into file 13. Okay, that's very interesting, Steve. And and I imagine as we get to the other side of this pandemic now, things are opening up, the travel restrictions are going to start to come off. I mean, you might start to see more and more people behind the wheel getting out, traveling again, driving again. We're already hearing reports that traffic volume is is increasing. Do you anticipate that this could go up even more here in in the days and weeks ahead? Having a driver's license is going to be a top priority for many, many people. Public transportation is not getting the patronage that it was before because of the fear of the pandemic. And you have other considerations, as I said. People want their driver's license like never before. And I always thought there'd be a waning of that. I thought public transportation and, you know, subways in eastern Canada, all these other things, all these other transportation modes would kind of take over. Uh, We are now at a 50% increase in business this year over our best year ever in in 35 years. Gee whiz. And I, I said, pandemic, let's batten down the hatches, relax, take it easy. Let's see what we can do. We know we're going to have problems in business. We're not going to be able to have tests for 16 weeks. So let's you know, get the serve and do whatever we can to, to, to keep the guys who are working with us you know, financially stable. And then this happens, and I would never have predicted this, and I'm supposed to be the expert, Mike. This caught me totally by surprise. Okay, that's fascinating. Speaking of Steve Wallace, owner of Wallace Driving School, yeah, his phone's ringing off the hook over there. Hey, Steve, I know that in other provinces, I've heard that some provinces have privatized driving tests. So that yeah, right, like Alberta, right here, Alberta's yeah. the, our neighbor. It's our closest neighbor. What they did was when Notley came in, she she ended the privatization of the driver's tests, and she said, "No, they're all going to be done by government employees." And then when Kenny won, he went back to, "No, we're going to privatize some of the uh, some of the road tests." I don't think that'll happen in British Columbia. We've had it uh, in the '80s as an experiment where the driving schools were allowed to test some of their own people for. A bunch of reasons they're out in outlying areas. I don't think that's going to happen here. Uh, as far as the process goes, I know the present government would probably be opposed to it. Uh, yeah. And so I'm not looking at that for a solution at this point. No, I don't think you're going to see an NDP government go anywhere near to privatizing anything to do with ICBC. But I remember earlier on in the pandemic, Steve, I think, didn't you suggest that maybe the driving schools could help out and pitch in with these backlog of road tests at one point? Yeah, that would be yeah. with the people who have the graduated licensing course. So they already take 18 hours of classroom. They have 12 hours minimum in the car. Those were the people that were guaranteed to take the test six months earlier than the two-year wait on the end phase. So we offered to help out with that. But that didn't seem to be a big problem, and it hasn't resulted in, in a big problem at this point. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Steve Wallace. Lots of calls and ICBC road tests. Let's go right to them now. Bronco in Vancouver. Hi. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate that. Sure. Um, real quick, uh, mom turned 80 last year. She did receive some uh, information, uh, paperwork regarding uh, medical reports. Her doctor did fill it out. Um, we're in the queue, good six, eight months now, waiting for her to get into this, uh, into this appointment. Uh, recently diagnosed with dementia, fun time. Uh, my question to you is, uh, from an insurance perspective, 
if she's been diagnosed and told not to drive and she has dementia and something happens and she crashes, is she, I, is she liable? Is she, um, like, will insurance cover her? I guess that's my question. Well, is she, my call. is she allowed to drive while she's waiting for the test? She has her current driver's license. They haven't yeah. taken it away. Okay, Steve, what do you think of that? It's the doctor's call at that point. So the doctor would, in fact, inform uh, ICBC whether the license should be taken away or not. If the dementia is advanced, the doctor will say take it away. If it's simply initial stages, people drive just fine uh, with that particular malady. Okay, and what if she gets into an accident in the interim? I mean, we've got she, no we've got yeah, no fault insurance now, so yeah, she yeah. she's covered. Yeah, she's covered. Yeah. I mean, we got we yeah. got no fault auto insurance now too, so. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Gord in Vancouver. Hey, Gord. Hello. Um, Hi. I think Steve would agree with me that there was a pretty considerable backlog even before uh, COVID hit. As I recall, it was, been, it was pretty steady three months most of the time. It used to be just in the summer months it would be incredibly backed up. But, you know, usually um, in the winter months, you know, spring, you'd maybe wait a month or so, sometimes even less, depending where you booked. Um, but one okay. thing that I think is uh, really increasing the backlog is that I've, in, in recent years, had a huge number. I have been an instructor for 22 years now, um, and a huge influx of the foreign-born coming here that are used to Aussie rules driving, uh, very little structure or, you know, um, just a different driving environment, and they may okay. be able to control the car yeah. very well, but just um, takes, you know, very often fail three, four. I've heard of people failing up to nine times before they finally pass. Steve Wallace, your thoughts? Uh, well, what's happening is you have countries that are flagged, okay, and people come in, they've been driving for years, but they bought their license from a crooked policeman, okay? They got it from not a state authority, but another manner, a surreptitious manner. ICBC mm. has all those countries listed. You come here from Britain, they give you a BC license. You come here from Australia, they give you a BC license. Those countries have the same kind of quality of testing that we do. There are other countries, you come here from the African countries, you're going for a road test. They got a list of all of them. Uh, but he's right. There are people coming here who've had licenses in other countries for many years. They've been purchased. They've never taken a test. And they take the test five, six, seven, eight times without ever having a prospect of a pass. What's the wow? That's amazing. Like, what is the highest number of uh, fails you've ever heard of someone failing a road test? Um, I had a guy phone me one time. He'd failed the test 11 times. <laughs> wow. And it was for simple. Well, here's the deal, Mike. I mean, if you, yeah. if you don't completely stop at a stop sign, you fail. If you go 4Ks over the speed limit, if you go 34 in a 30K uh, school zone, playground zone, you fail, okay? If you miss your shoulders three times on the right-hand side, you fail. There's a whole host of things. This is the toughest test in North America. There's nobody even compares wow. our test. Eight skill-related things. It is the toughest. And guess what? Deaths on the highway over the number of years that I've been in business have gone from about six to 700 to now below 300. Okay. So whatever they're doing in the testing thing is working. Okay, star 9898 on your cell is the number to call. Joe on the line in Surrey. Hi, Joe. Hi. Hi. Um, so my question is, is uh, I sort of get into what happened to me. Um, so I was going for the air brake course and then the test, of course. Uh, and while I was 
trying to get the test. I only had one chance, and you're given three chances on one course. So I'm wondering why, because there was such a huge, like it was just an enormous backlog, and it was not only three months backlog, it was about six months backlog when I took it, when I tried to take it. And knowing this and knowing what you guys went through to actually deal with the COVID crisis, why wasn't it extended so that people could actually get a chance to try the course a number of three times? Okay, so you mean that's if you take the course and you you take the test and you fail. Is that what you're talking about? Right. Yeah, okay, Steve, Steve. Yeah, uh, they always say, oh, yeah, I can go back in two weeks and take it. They make you take a two-week rest. The fact is that if you take it and you fail it now uh, twice, then they make you wait a month, and then after that they may make you wait even longer, like three months before you can take it. But the key for us is with the trucking tests and the uh, and the higher classifications, uh, their ICBC has actually moved to go on-site where some of the trucking uh, driving schools are located so that they can better accommodate the public. So they're making moves in that regard. It's just that you got to know, Mike, that 40% of all the truckers that we are on the road now are going to retire within the next 10 years. So there has to be okay. an amazing program to get. every 95% of everything we get comes by truck. So there's got to okay. be an amazing incentive program in the next couple of years to get more truckers uh, qualified and on the road.